0: Welcome to The Defiant. I'm your host, Tegan Klein. Today we have Aya, co-CEO and co-founder of Fractal. Aya is a crypto OG. From Bloomberg to CNBC, now The Defiant. Aya shares her founder journey of Fractal, the impact that the FTX collapse had on institutional players, DeFi growth since many CeFi companies imploded, how Fractal is red pilling institutions as well as her prediction on how many institutions will be custodying crypto and having tokens on the balance sheet in five to 10 years time, and so much more. But first, Aya tells us about her crypto journey thus far.
1: Yeah, so it's been, uh, definitely, I would define it as a journey. It started off in uh, in 2018 um, when I joined Pantera Capital. Uh, and few people actually realize this, but 2018 was actually at the cusp of when a lot of the DeFi blue chips uh, that really gained traction in the DeFi summer of 2020 uh, actually started. So you had um, Aave, Synthetics, Compound, uh, were just a few, Augur, all of these companies were started either pre-2018 uh, or around 2017. Um, and so that's when I joined uh, Pantera, that was also during the boom and bust of the ICO bubble. And so uh, it was a really interesting time to test how companies can raise capital uh, in you know, tokenized public markets um, and in a way that was decentralized uh, and so that was really interesting. It was a front row seat to all of that growth. And then from there transitioned into uh, an operator role, which was previously my background uh, at Falcon X. So I was part of the founding team of Falcon X uh, and joined very early on uh, to build out their uh, sales and trading arm of the business globally and headed that uh, as well. So after their being there for three and a half years, leading the company through their Series D uh, left last year, Definitely had a lot of concerns um, when I left, you know, even starting from uh, around the Luna crash uh, beginning of March of 2022 um, and, you know, concerns that I, I wanted to spend not just part of my time, but all of my time uh, really focusing on and helping fix. And that led to my transition out uh, in September and then into uh, Fractal and where it is today.
0: Amazing. And I'm super excited to get into Fractal in a moment, but I do want to double click on your time at Falcon X. You know, I know you left, I think it was around two months before the FTX collapse. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of the inside scoop leading up to that collapse and just client and investor sentiment?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, I left in September prior to FTX, but uh, what, what I can say is I think there was a lot of, and you see this actually happen a lot in crypto where bull markets create confidence in investors that may necessarily not need to be there uh, in certain uh, third parties. And what FTX led to was actually this uh, huge impulse of self-custody and exchange withdrawals, the largest actually in history of crypto, and it led to a momentum of on-chain activity. You saw it, I'm sure, with the graph, you saw it with other protocols, uh, and you saw even developers on Other uh, ones like Ethereum, even Avalanche, you know that those numbers peaked after what happened with FTX. Uh, And there's actually two statistics that I think are are really interesting, um, most notably uh, that happened on chain. Um, What happened after the March 2020 sell off was you really started to get real entrance in size on chain. And then what happened with FTX in 2020 was you saw this massive deleveraging. And that deleveraging is what led to self-custody being a must, not, uh, you know, should have and um, exchange withdrawals. And I think, you know, you're seeing the effects of that both in the companies that are being built today, uh, but also in investor sentiment overall.
0: Absolutely. And kind of on Fractal. So it's an institutional DeFi platform. First,
1: can we talk a little bit about the current state of DeFi as you see it? Sure. So. You know, I would say, um, you know, DeFi TVL itself is, is obviously a statistic people look at quite a bit. Uh, it's been kind of all over the place uh, with the markets, but it has, you know, in, in April uh, of earlier this year, um, from Jan to April, it was up 30%. Uh, and so you are definitely still seeing activity on chain happening. Uh, the other thing that's happening with DeFi is you're seeing because you have uh, interest rates uh, at where they are today, um, you have the Fed potentially gearing up to raise interest rates later this week, uh, and you also have Treasuries uh, and risk-free rate, you know, at around four to five percent. Where you're actually starting to see in DeFi is the first time there's this massive push to get real-world assets on chain. So I think uh, the number is there's over four billion dollars worth of real-world asset loans that have been extended. Uh, and tokenized on-chain across all the protocols in crypto today. That's a pretty big number, um, and obviously that's growing. You're seeing a number of tokenized treasuries. And so there, there's definitely interest in bringing a lot of the activity that you saw in CFI and some of the activity you're seeing in traditional finance on-chain, despite you know, TVL potentially being down at large.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that it did increase 30% over that duration that you mentioned. And I almost think that the action, the regulatory action on these centralized exchanges had the opposite effect of what the regulators thought they would. You know, they maybe expected money to go back into centralized finance, but really what we
1: saw was it went to decentralized finance. Would you kind of agree with that correlation? A hundred percent. And I think. You know, there's there's so much data to back that up. If you look at Uniswap, Uniswap alone, Uniswap has had more than two to three days where it not just slightly surpassed Coinbase volumes, but there was one day where it had over 45% more volume, spot volume than Coinbase. I mean, that is a tremendous statistic. And I think people don't realize the amount of volume that happens on those high volatility days and that DeFi is easier, sometimes cheaper to use um, and the you know, first choice for a lot of not just retail, but also institutions uh, and a lot of the regulatory actions did create some of that push to off chain or on chain, excuse me, on chain providers.
0: Totally, and kind of thinking back to the the TVL explosion from DeFi summer in 2021 and 22, and as you alluded to, we realized kind of a lot of that was based on this excessive leverage. Uh, and so, where do you kind of see DeFi headed overall? What, what path do you see it kind of going on?
1: Sure. So, you know, at large, I think the the big issue that DeFi's had is always this cat and mouse game of yield, uh, and you know, where's the yield coming from, and is the yield, um, is the yield uh, normal and non-incentivized and just natural flow um, versus like token incentives or or any other incentives that inflate um, non-real yield. And I think, you know, real world assets is a big bucket that I know a lot of money is being spent towards uh, to tokenize whatever real world asset has yield. I've seen really interesting products that for example, you have a vault and you're buying very, very boring insurance products uh, and you're just able to tokenize that and now use that as collateral in the same way that you would use that as collateral in traditional finance uh, and find someone who would underwrite it. So you know, there's really interesting stuff uh, that's being worked on in the real world asset space that just takes time um, to build. And there's a lot of jurisdictions in the world, whether it's France, Singapore, um, Japan, that are very proactive and trying to push those along. Um, and then the other area that you're seeing in DeFi is you're actually just seeing this move away from a lot of these tokenized incentives, uh, whether it's you know, derivative exchanges or even Uniswap X, you're seeing that there's just natural volume and flow of people who want to trade in and out of these assets that lead to very natural uh, trading fees that incentivize the market makers to continue providing Uh, Volume And so really what I mean is that the iterations of these products are finally reaching a point where you don't need incentives for something to not only break even, but be, you know, um, you can make money off of if you're a user in that ecosystem. And so, uh, you know, again, this stuff just takes time and incentives are sometimes a necessary way to jumpstart that growth. But, um, you know, I'm sure you've seen a lot of that even in your position as well with what you've seen.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, it looks like you guys are targeting institutional DeFi, which kind of signals uh, to me that you think that that's here to stay. How do you see uh, that evolving and growing? Do you think it is poised for growth?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that you know what I've seen at least with the clients previously that we had at FalconX was a lot of them wouldn't touch anything on chain, and the biggest transition I've seen. With those same clients post FTX, is that on chain risk is conceptualized. You can actually underwrite it, uh, even smart contract risk, because you can transparently see where those assets are being held and how they're being used. You can underwrite that risk. CeFi risk, you cannot underwrite. Uh, it's really this black box model of not knowing whether rehypothecation is happening, not knowing where those assets sit, not knowing that when you log into your account, and it says ten million dollars. The ten million dollars are actually there, and it's not being you know sent to some backdoor market maker that's trading it on your behalf. So you know all of this stuff has really led to better adoption of DeFi. It's you have to be able to underwrite your credit risk and your counterparty risk, um, and I think that's a you know an unfortunate le- lesson that a lot of counterparties learned. And so DeFi provides not only that disintermediation but also transparency, and I think you know, the gap is there just haven't been institutional DeFi products in the space. And what I mean by that is def- institutional products are white glove, they have to have 24 seven coverage, there needs to be support staff, someone that you can call and talk to. So the protocol itself could be decentralized, but you still need people to help onboard those users to the protocol um, to help facilitate those trades. And, and that's hopefully where Fractal is, is really bridging the gap. Uh, but we've definitely seen a lot of interest from clients who wouldn't necessarily use the product, you know, six eight months ago, who are now, you know, some of our first beta users. Amazing,
0: exciting. And it's, I guess if we have to learn these lessons every new cycle, it feels like, but it is good that more and more people are learning. And for US retail DeFi users like us, it's so much easier and cost-effective to use DeFi than anything centralized. Uh, and so do you think that cost of, uh, efficiency of DeFi kind of carries over through to the institutional users?
1: Yes, I can't emphasize enough how much cheaper it is to use DeFi. So one thing that was uh, a really interesting pattern that we saw while I was at Falcon X was because of the way that a lot of these tokens come to market, uh, majority of them actually don't initially launch on Binance or centralized exchanges, but in fact, will launch and do an initial token launch on a decentralized exchange. Sometimes that's Uniswap, other times it's in partnership with someone like Balancer. And what you'll find is that a lot of the best liquidity pockets are actually in DeFi versus CeFi. And so sure, if you if you go out of the 10 top majors, majority of the time, there's better liquidity on chain than there is off chain. So that's a first. You will find cheaper prices in DeFi than CeFi for a lot of these tokens, even to just purchase spot. And so I don't think a lot of people realize that. Uh, and that's also the beauty of the way that a lot of these tokens come to market. Um, is that, you know, the best liquidity is where they're initially launching. So that's the first. The second is disintermediation, right? When, I mean, it's just when you have five different people trying to take, you know, two to 10 BIPs on a trade, that adds up uh, tremendously, as opposed to you just engaging directly with whether it's the lender, the bar, the market maker, uh, and you just have that one single transaction fee. That's the second. And the third, which I think is The best part of just on-chain finance and at large is it's all transparent. You can literally go and see how much you were charged. And if let's say you disagree with that, you are more than welcome to go and use other service providers. And I think that's the beauty of what you've seen. It's one reason that it's very hard to build on-chain, but it's the beauty that you've seen even between the relationship between SushiSwap and Uniswap. It's the beauty when you see any forks of any of these large uh, blue chip protocols. Um, even the relationship between Compound and Aave uh, where you've seen those lending uh, yields change or differ between protocols. And I think that's great for the end user. Why? Um, because you're given the option to really decide uh, where you want to trade. And you're given the transparency as well, um, which you should appreciate. And then the last thing I'll say, too, um, in addition to it being cheaper, uh, it, I can't emphasize again, the counterparty risk is a cost that you are also paying, right? Uh, whether you might be paying less in transaction fees, but you're actually paying higher in counterparty risk. And you may not necessarily be thinking through how much that counterparty risk is. So sometimes that smart contract risk, if, if structured correctly, whitelisted correctly with the right security features on top is actually a cheaper model and cheaper counterparty risk for you than the black box CFI model that you just don't know how to price. Um, And so I think that's something that people don't always calculate into their end score. And one also beautiful example of that was during the FTX debacle, uh, there was someone who was uh, a counterparty who was incredibly long on MakerDAO. They were about to get margin called. It would have led to a huge liquidation in the market and really rocked prices. And what was nice about that event was the entire ecosystem was talking about it publicly, and everyone could hedge against that margin call happening, and that's that's amazing. Um, whereas if you take even traditional finance with Archegos and what happened with Credit Suisse and what happened with UBS, I mean, like these, when you're unable to hedge and plan accordingly because you don't have that transparency, that cost can sometimes be much larger than you as a counterparty can even pay, um, and you know it leads to uh, what we've seen happen even in traditional finance.
0: Can you double click into that? Why is that such a great thing? Maybe for the less financially minded listener.
1: Sure. Absolutely. So, um, taking FTX as an example, uh, as opposed to you trading on Uniswap, um, or you doing uh, trading on any on-chain marketplace, uh, when you are uh, trading on an on-chain marketplace, you do have smart contract, risk if you are leaving your assets or depositing your assets, but assuming we're just doing a, a simple trade where you're going in and you're buying something. So you go in and buy something uh, on Uniswap, you have the assets pre-funded in your uh, MetaMask wallet, you are the signer of those transactions. You may have a Fireblocks or other multi-party signature uh, security feature on top, uh, but then you purchase, it happens automatically. Uh, with a liquidity provider on the other side and now you have the assets now held in your wallet with a ledger whatever security features you have on top that's done on an exchange let's say take for example ftx you have to pre-fund your account and so now your assets are leaving your wallet and they're sitting on the exchange Uh, now you may go and buy the uh let's say bitcoin or whatever asset on exchange however now the assets that you own are still sitting on that exchange what happened with FTX is all of a sudden FTX collapses, and you know your assets are now no, not only are they not in your wallet, but you're not even able to withdraw them because lo and behold, um, you know the exchange is bankrupt. And so people don't think about that being—that's what we define as counterparty risk. But if that counterparty risk sometimes is, you know, you don't know how to underwrite it or calculate what that is, sometimes that counterparty risk is much higher than any transaction fee that you'll be paying on something um, transparent like Uniswap because, in the, again, in the Uniswap example, you still have the assets, they're yours, they're sitting in your wallet. In the FTX example, you not only lost the asset, but you also probably paid a fee on top of it too.
0: Absolutely, thanks for the breakdown. And I wanna get into the product and customer journey in a second, but before we do, maybe can you give us just the quick TLDR of Fractal and, and the founding story, what inspired you to, to start?
1: Sure. Yeah. So Fractal, um, Fractal was actually built initially over a year ago uh, with the team over at Ledger Prime. So it was incubated at Ledger Prime, uh, and really the backend system was a number of risk engines that were used to manage DeFi and on-chain positions. And the original team of Fractal, uh, as they were building it, realized like DeFi and just on-chain finance is incredibly difficult as an institution to manage not transparent, not capital efficient. UI UX sometimes isn't giving you the accurate numbers. It's difficult to plug and pull information from smart contracts. Uh, Again, a good plug for the graph, which helps you organize a number of those features in an an easy way. But in general, I mean, it's just very difficult to operate uh, in DeFi. And so um, the team came out of that and uh, as, you know, last summer basically spun out to build Fractal And the initial iterations of Fractal and and what it came to be is combining kind of that background and then the background from Falcon X and some of the feedback from our clients was uh, in order for institutions to ever be able to use on-chain protocols, you need to make them capital efficient. You can't have these protocols uh, pre-fund every single account in your wallet because it becomes very, very expensive to do in size. And so how do you create both a capital-efficient on-chain product that gives you the institutional feel, but is still able to integrate into the DeFi protocols that have been battle-tested now through multiple cycles. And that's what Fractal is. So it it really is an institutional on-chain collateral management tool that allows for ease of clearing, settling, uh, and then extension of credit on top of those positions.
0: Amazing. I love it. And then talk to us a little bit about that product and customer journey.
1: Sure, sure. So for us, all of our borrowers on the platform are institutions that go through KYC, KYB. I'd say on average, they tend to be like 150 million plus in AUM and they, they tend to be market neutral crypto native funds. So the type of trading that they're looking to do is some sort of uh, delta neutral uh, position where they are long, on one side, short on the other side, and earning some sort of interest on the asset in between. And that's the yield that they're making on the position. That can look anywhere between like an ETH basis trade where you're long ETH, short the PERP, and you're just collecting the staking staked ETH yield or any other asset where you're staking it. Or it can be one of these um, DeFi uh, yield farming pools um, or like a convex pool or even as a liquidity provider on Uniswap or other DEXs. And so those are kind of the ranges of strategies that these clients are running. Uh, They may be running them already on chain and some of them are running them also via OTC bilateral agreements. So for example, if you have a client that can't necessarily touch DeFi directly due to KYC concerns, there's a way for you to wrap these products up in an OTC agreement whereby you get exposure to the underlying asset but you're really still facing a market maker on the other side that's pricing for you. Um, and so those are a few examples. Uh, so really the user journey is how do we take these borrowers? We let them put on the same positions, but we do so in a way that is far cheaper than their ability to do so right now in DeFi. Um, and so what we've done is we've created basically these uh, lender owned uh, segregated managed accounts, whereby managers deposit assets, deploy strategies they're segregated, and lenders have full transparency into the strategy and can underwrite the risk. The reason for that is there's no capital in the space left after what happened with FTX, and rightfully so, because lenders couldn't underwrite the risk. You know They were lending into black boxes. Um, and so this is a way for lenders to have full transparency into what's being deployed, on what protocol, with what asset, and so forth. And so lenders are able to really manage the restrictions there and then for managers what we'll do is we'll make it capital efficient so uh, we will uh, find ways to underwrite different types of collateral as long as there's a liquid market we've explored ways of collateralizing with tokenized treasuries in partnership with a number of different players um, and so forth so that's uh, a very long ramble, but uh, hopefully just a, a high level on the user journey.
0: Super helpful. And can you double click into some of the core features and capabilities that the sub accounts offer to an institution?
1: Sure. So uh, I would say the biggest one is really this uh, institutional white glove service uh, for underwriting different collateral uh, requirements. So for example, um, we've been able to underwrite uh, in partnership with lenders and borrowers and different market makers, we've been able to underwrite uh, esoteric things like a convex tri-crypto pool. Uh, we've been able to underwrite assets that aren't currently supported on Ave. Uh, that we there's still a very liquid market for. Uh, we've been able to also underwrite liquid staking derivatives and get um, a lot of the large crypto prime brokers comfortable with those. Um, and that's obviously very very big because really when you have the risk-free rate at five percent, uh, what happens for an institution is you need to, on minimum, make a majority of these clients need to make a minimum of 15 to 20% baseline return. And so you have risk right here at five, you could, you know, either lever into treasuries, or you can try to find that level of yield in on-chain finance and in, through these strategies. And what we've done is basically try to find ways where uh, we've been able to underwrite Uh, yield bearing collateral for all of these positions, the same strategies that you're able to maximize the yield while still using very liquid assets um, to get capital efficiency. Uh, And really, uh, you know, I would simplify that as as allowing for different assets that currently exist across different protocols, across different layer ones uh, and twos, allowing the ability for each of them to speak to each other through our risk engine uh, and through the partnerships we've made across across the ecosystem.
0: Amazing! And on the topic of liquid staking, who are the top players in the liquid staking industry in in your mind?
1: Yeah, great great question. Um, so, I mean, without question, obviously, um, Stake Teeth and Wrap Stake Teeth is going to be the the biggest one. Um, on top of that, there it's it really depends. Um, we've seen a lot of. So it depends between you know you have iterations of that with things like Origin ETH so aggregations of liquid staked derivatives uh, for Ethereum um, and why those are attractive is because you'll see like minimum of let's say eight percent on something like OETH uh, and then we've seen on the liquid staking derivatives um, it's not necessarily um, you know obviously there's interest in EigenLayer and some of those other players in the space um, but we've also seen a lot of interest in uh, even LP positions uh, with the tri- uh, tri-crypto pool. So for example, um, today when you have something like a convex LP token, uh, it's not necessarily liquid staking derivative, but it's still a yield bearing uh, LP token. And we've seen a lot, of, a lot of interest in trying to be able to do something with that position as well too.
0: Amazing. And just so I understand, can institutions use Fractal to use existing DeFi primitives like, say, Aave or Uniswap, or is it kind of built more to allow two counterparties to trade against one another directly?
1: Yeah, great question. So it'll do both. So what Fractal does is, depending on the strategy, it will uh, will create a customized smart contract uh, that allows for only two whitelisted addresses to access it. So you'll have uh, two whitelisted addresses, one from the lender, the borrower side, uh, that are whitelisted funding accounts, and they're allowed to fund the strategy account. Uh, and then what happens with the strategy wallet that then deploys into whether it's Aave, whether it's Compound, Balancer. Uh, we are EVM compatible, so um, we do currently have integrations with the major players, GMX, uh, MUX, um, and uh, basically, what it allows it to do is that now you're running a strategy, and it'll look and feel in the same way as if you were running the strategy independently. But it is done in a strategy well, um, in a strategy account, uh, a fractal with a fractal risk engine inside that that account. And so, what that does is it monitors for if there's a loan on top, it monitors for margin requirements, it monitors for collateral requirements, and if necessary, it also monitors for liquidations um, as well uh and then it also so that is if it's deployed into these decentralized applications which we support today um there may be one that we don't support we're currently building out that list so uh, if there's any um dApps uh you know that are top of mind that it's you know institutions would find interest in that's always something that we're looking for as we continue to integrate with more of these in the space Um, and then we're also bringing the OTC bilateral agreements on chain so as you mentioned. If two counterparties are just facing each other, uh, then what will happen is these uh, accounts will, you'll still have your funding account, but then your strategy contract will basically act just as a third party escrow account. So let's say if you're entering into a transaction that requires margin, that margin will sit in that uh, escrow account. It will not be rehypothecated. You will see where it sits. And then what's nice is if it does need to get liquidated, uh, it'll allow either the lender the market maker or the borrower uh, to call to liquidate um, depending on how the position is performing. So the idea again is how do you create a, an on-chain transparent settlement system for collateral across all these applications, across all these tokens that don't speak to one another, across all of these like OTC bilateral agreements that are just signed with you know a traditional ISTA contract but you know basically executed via Google spreadsheets on the back end. Uh, How do you create a more sophisticated, fully automated process uh, that does so um, for you in a transparent way?
0: Amazing. And I've seen you refer in your comms to the product as a protocol, as in fractal protocol. Do you see it to be more of a DeFi primitive or kind of somewhere between a product and a protocol?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great uh, call call out and I think um, uh, a really good good catch. I think, you know, from our perspective today, um, I'll talk about kind of the different phases of of where we are. Um, Today is kind of, you know, as I discussed with the product in its early initial days, the future state of Fractal and what we're very excited for is as we've been onboarding more and more uh, lenders and capital markets, desks. we're super excited about working with Maple, Clearpool, Cicada, and all of these other um, lending providers as well. What we've noticed from some of these providers and even centralized lending prime broker desks is they all want to run the risk engine themselves because they are taking on, uh, some level of risk, uh, in order for the risk engine to operate correctly, for the margin calls to happen correctly and for liquidations to happen correctly as, as needed. And so in today's state fractal uh, protocol is automatically running the risk engine in tomorrow's state. Uh, the goal is to have these lenders market makers uh, and different risk and en- basically different risk actors running the risk engine uh, and then fractal can fully decentralize in that state at that point it will make sense for us to have a token uh, so that all transaction fees would get paid to those running the risk engine uh, and of course doing so in a fair way um, and so that's the future state and I think you know, if once, we're, once and if we're able to, to accomplish that, that will be a really beautiful state of institutional clearing and settling um, in a fully automated way without manual uh, margin calls um, overnight or any of the manual mistakes that I think FTX really showed light to. And, and at that point, you'll have a fully decentralized system whereby you have two sides of a marketplace taking ownership for a trade Face to face, without the 15 middlemen that typical institutional products uh, require.
0: Exciting, and that's some nice alpha. And how can listeners get involved in Fractal today? Say, you know, the everyday person.
1: Sure. So, um, you know, we're we're not as active on our on our Fractal clearing Twitter, but our Discord is pretty active um, today. Uh, you know, in terms of how we're we're working through the product, um, any product updates. For example, we did launch. Um, both the Camelot and Kronos uh, pool um, in partnership with those exchanges. We're uh, currently integrating with MUX, which we're really excited about uh, and excited for GMX's V2 as they're gearing to launch that. Um, and so all of those updates will happen in our Discord channel uh, and always um, you know, feel free to, to send me an email. My email is just ayafractalprotocol.org uh, and always happy to to find both new applications for us to integrate with and, and any anything new that we can keep top of mind.
0: Totally, and on that, what are some examples of how the the protocol could be used in a composable way?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the, the huge piece here is uh, really what we're working on is how to make different positions composable with one another. Um, and so for us, the way to continue that expansion of composability is to be able to continue to underwrite more and more assets in the space that again are liquid and have liquid markets and also onboard more and more of these underwriters to manage the risk engine for these different assets. And so as assets uh, launch and have liquid markets, you need risk engines that can backtest, underwrite um, and then forward test and manage positions using those assets as collateral. And so in the example that I mentioned you know, tokenized insurance, um, the way for us to make, expand composability is to have more and more of these underwriters get comfortable with underwriting these different tokenized assets, bring more and more lenders that are comfortable lending against those assets, um, and, and expand that ecosystem. So really the future state is that all things should be composable on Fractal as long as there's a liquid market to back it up. Um, and that's kind of what we're working towards.
0: Exciting. And then can you double click into how you guys identified it, identified the need
1: for something like fractal early days? Yeah. I mean, again, there was just so many pain points and there still are, uh, to engage in DeFi today. Uh, it's really hard to, you know, get the accurate information across the different protocols. and it's hard to, um, not only build to the protocols. Uh, but also manage positions across the space. And as I mentioned on the institutional side, there really just isn't an institutional feel to any of the on-chain protocols today. Um, and so for us, the idea was, what if you know, we were able to bring this you know, 24-7, 365 institutional white glove experience to on-chain finance, add a layer of KYC into it, make these positions composable, really teach institutions how to use some of these protocols and smart contracts. Uh, and we do the heavy lifting and, you know, will that then lead to more institutional adoption on chain? And uh, so far it's been working. So, um, you know, I think we're, we're pretty excited about, um, about how that's progressed. One, one actually cool data point that we have is, um, you know, I think again, you know, initially in our beta stage, um, we are very much supporting a lot of these Delta neutral yield farming strategies. And I think initially we we're expecting those to churn uh, monthly uh, at maximum. And what we've seen is that these positions since launching three months ago have actually stayed on uh, for the full three plus months. And so we haven't seen uh, that churn happen. And so you actually get this cool institutional stickiness that you get in CFI in DeFi. So if you're just able to bridge that gap, even for some of these protocols, it's great. I mean, that's the kind of user that you want on your platform. You just need to bridge the gap to getting them comfortable to use the application. Totally.
0: But that's not always easy. Talk to us because it sounds like you're red pilling a lot of institutions. So talk to us about how those conversations usually go. And what do you generally include in those conversations that gets people get people to actually listen?
1: Yeah, um, you, you're pretty spot on. Uh, I mean, listen, it's hard to it's hard to teach anyone something that they haven't necessarily used or felt or seen before. Um, there's always this initial pushback. I think what's nice is, uh, and you know, I mean, same goes for you as well. Having been in the space this long, a lot of these institutions have already had the first or maybe second, third iteration of that conversation by the time we get to them. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, you know, I think the, the biggest thing our industry struggles with at large is simplification it's very easy to you know, go down the rabbit hole of account abs- abstraction and what a gnosis safe is. And um, you know, some of these more difficult terms where if you just don't understand what a smart contract is, you've already lost the user on the other side. And so one thing that we've spent a lot of time with our investors on is how do we simplify what this actually means? It means uh, a lot of charts, a lot of user journeys um, that we've drawn out and just sitting down uh, with some of these institutions and you know using MetaMask Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, that's what it takes to get these across the finish line.
0: Totally. And I remember during the last bull market, a lot of institutions were like, well, do you think I really need to be able to custody tokens in order to get involved in this space? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. Like if it's equity, it's not the space. Uh, and so I guess fast forward five, 10 years from now, how many institutions do you think
1: will be custodying tokens? All of them. Uh, I mean, I, I just don't imagine a world where, <laughs> I mean, if you, yeah, uh, you should not be not custodying your own assets. And I think, unfortunately, that's the one lesson the industry has had to teach users time and time again. It happened with Mt. Gox. It happened with Bitmax. It happened with FTX. Uh, and it hasn't happened with MakerDAO. It hasn't happened with Compound. It hasn't happened with Aave. Um, and sure, you know, don't get me wrong. There are issues with usability sometimes of some of the applications that exist out there, but you don't lose the asset. Uh, and so I think that's the the biggest thing. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there there shouldn't be a single institution out there that isn't custodying their assets. And one thing I will say is the custodians have progressed significantly um, in the types of things that they're able to support, the types of assets uh, they're able to support, BitGo, Zodiac, Fireblocks, so much um so much innovation has happened there uh and it takes time but a lot of innovation has happened there and um that's really great for the space but yeah back to your question uh 100 100
0: love that and agree and then talk to us a little bit about the round you just raised
1: congratulations and what are you guys planning to do with those funds sure thanks yeah it's, uh so you know the company actually raised the round uh started the raise a week before ftx collapsed Uh, and closed the round a week after FTX collapsed. So uh, timing was uh, really interesting to say the least. Um, And, you know, sentiment back then was, uh, I mean, you know, you were either speaking to someone who thought crypto was dead or you were speaking to someone who really had conviction on the space. Uh, And so it was really interesting to speak with different investors at that time. Um, But in terms of the round, so uh, really fortunate and very lucky to have raised from some of the best. Investors, $6 million will be deploying that uh, into just hiring uh, and really making sure that we understand collateral, we understand composability, we understand security, uh, and we understand uh, DeFi as well as we can and become very, very good at on-chain collateral management. That's really the area that we wanna be best at. Everything else, um, you know, we're excited to build partnerships uh, with different players, whether it's on the capital market side, the prime broker side, the exchange connectivity side, and so forth. Um, but really, the focus is hiring some of the best and brightest engineers out there.
0: Amazing. And tell us a little bit about the business model today, kind of ahead of that potential future token launch.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, today I would think of us as structured similar to the way Fireblocks is. So, uh, the way we make money is over assets under custody or assets that are held in this sub-account uh, as collateral. Uh, and so as opposed to more of the prime broker model, which is typically uh, a yield spread or a transaction fee. And so um, it's really thinking through different iterations of how long is, are those assets held as collateral uh, and also how are they being um, cross-margined against other positions uh, and other, uh, other collateral management accounts as well.
0: Amazing. And then what advice do you have for someone who wants to follow a similar path as you have in your career?
1: Do it. I know that sounds simple and silly, but uh, I think the hardest thing coming out of last year was having the confidence to say, you know, I think I know what the solution is. And I think I've heard from clients uh, what they want to be built. The hardest part was really just having the confidence to say, I'm just going to do it. You know, and I'm gonna have those conversations. I'm gonna tough it out and raise, you know, during an FTX collapse, and uh, and still have, you know, some some uh, confidence to say, you know, this has to get built. And I think, you know, the people who build in crypto are some of the craziest people I've ever met because crypto will beat you down, and <laughs> you really need to have love and belief for what you know these different protocols and companies are building, um, to say, I want to do it. I want to surround myself with more of these builders and thinkers and, uh, innovators, and I want to innovate and, um, yeah, it's very hard to, to do that. But, you know, I, I would just say have as many conversations as possible, because there's so many people out there who would be really supportive for you to just go for it. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Tegan, I have so much respect for you. You've done the same and it's it's not easy and uh, we just need more people to to rip the band-aid and and do it.
0: Completely agree. And I guess what what is your why? You know, what kind of keeps you motivated? Why crypto over any other industry?
1: Yeah, I would never leave. Uh, I would never leave crypto. It's you know, at this point once you've seen how much better the user experience is, how much easier it is. Every time I have to send a wire I, I think I lose like five years off my life through traditional banking rails. You know, it it takes five days, something gets lost. You know, they keep calling me uh, to confirm, you know, small amounts. I mean, it is absolutely absurd. And once you, once you've been to your point, like red pill to, well, this is what finance should look like. This is what the future financial iteration of products that we deserve should look like. You just can't go back, and um, you know institutions deserve. We're we're in the institutional space, but I truly believe that institutions just deserve a cheaper, easier product to use than traditional banking rails. And I truly believe that the people who should be making money in the space are the ones that are providing liquidity and the ones that are supporting these applications. And once you're, once you see how much, you know, I mean, even if you take, for example, this is going to sound very traditional finance, but you know, if you look at even just FX, the amount of money the FX markets brings in for just the ability to convert assets from one currency to another is e- egregious. It's crazy. And it's because you've had these financial institutions who monopolize these different industries. And, you know, FX is just one big example of that. You only have three big FX desks that, you know, monopolize all of FX flow. but if you were to take that even to auto sales, home sales, you know, like when you don't have transparency for how these financial transactions happen, um, you know, you start to see that there's a lot of cracks in the way they're being priced and the users are always the ones paying, uh, for that. And so, yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, despite the market beating you down, there's nothing else I'd rather be working on. And, uh, I can't really imagine having, um, having a, uh, not crazy roller coaster ecosystem to be in every single day.
0: Totally. Embrace the chaos. And with that, our last question is just how are you defiant?
1: You know, I think uh, there's a big group of builders who have really toughed out so many market cycles. And I'm fortunate to be surrounded by those builders like yourself, like many others in the space who have despite market cycles that for a lot of people force them to go back into traditional jobs, uh, despite that, you know, have been able to say, you know what, this is why, this is this is the reason I wanna double down on this. And to your point about embracing chaos, that's a really hard thing to do uh, when markets collapse. And it's a really hard thing to do um, when things don't go as planned. And uh, yeah, just um, very grateful for that community of builders in this space, we're able to time and time again, just see the chaos happen and say, you know, this is why I'm going to double down. Uh, we're all just a little bit crazy, but <laughs> clearly love the <this> space enough.
0: <laughs> totally. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate
1: it. Thank you so much for having me.